Welcome to the Gulf Coast Life Book Club. I'm your host, Carrie Barber, and I'm thrilled to announce that starting today, the book club will air on the first and third Wednesday, twice a month instead of once. Today on the show, we hear from Julie DeCaro. She writes about the massive inequality afforded women in professional sports in her terrific new book, Sidelined, Sports, Culture, and Being a Woman in America. Here's our conversation. Equality for women in the workplace is making progress, glacially slow as the pace may be. We do seem to be heading in the right direction. One area, though, that seems untouched by any strides toward equality is in professional sports. Julie DeCaro has been a reporter of professional sports for more than a decade and is now on staff at Deadspin. She has written a fascinating book called Sidelined, Sports, Culture, and Being a Woman in America, in which she investigates what it's like to be a woman in that space. It's not pretty. Julie DeCaro, welcome to the Gulf Coast Life Book Club. Hi, thanks for having me. You write that sports media looks like what America would look like without the Equal Pay Act or Title VII, which covers employment discrimination. Can you say more about that, and how do you think we got there? (laughs) That's a great question. Um, You know, people turn on ESPN, and they see a lot of women in front of the camera on ESPN. So they think that sports media at large is sort of reflective of what you see on ESPN, and that's really not the case. It is incredibly undiverse, if that's a word. You know, a lot of times, especially for women, you walk into any given newsroom, any given radio station, and you're the only woman there. And it is a place where, I mean, you can look at lineups for radio stations across the country and see nothing but men from morning until night. And, you know, with women making up almost 50% of the of the fan base in sports like the NFL, Major League Baseball, the NBA, it, it's really sort of jarring that, that no one has ever demanded that a newsroom or a radio station reflect the fan base in any kind of meaningful way. It, it's mostly still white men. And I think it's one of the few areas in uh, 2021 where there's still really no push for diversity or, or no call to sort of include other kinds of voices. Yeah, there's like the rare former player of color. <laughs> right. And that's it. Right. Yeah. Also, I think there's a lot of misunderstanding about how sports reporters do their jobs. For instance, tell me why it's important for women to have access to the players' locker rooms after a game. Oh, well, you know, first of all, I'm, you know, we always get told, you know, oh, you want to go in the locker room because you want to see naked guys. I mean, that's been the trope since women first started being able to go into the locker rooms in the, in the early and mid 70s. Um, you know, the thing about going in the locker rooms is that nobody really wants to be in there. That's just where leagues have decided that that is where you're going to be able to talk to the players right after the game. Now, COVID has sort of interfered with that. But up until, you know, COVID, that is where you get the uh, the emotional sort of money quotes, money reactions from the guys right after the game. I think they're going to be the most honest. It's the most casual environment. And it's very different from when a player is sitting up at a, a podium behind a microphone talking to all the press at once. You know, you can approach someone at their locker and, you know, get their feelings on something before it's sort of been sanitized and run through the team PR machine. The story about women wanting to be in the locker room, I hate being in the locker room. I think locker rooms are disgusting. I really have no desire to be back in there. But if if you're do, trying to do your job, you need to be allowed to do your job in the same way that men are allowed to do their jobs. And for too long, Women were not allowed to go into the locker room, women reporters, and so they were at a disadvantage uh, when it came to writing their stories. 
Yeah, and there's a great story that Claire Smith tells about standing outside the locker room and you know, you had to wait back in the 70s and 80s even for someone for them to bring someone out to you. And by that time, the guy's already told the story and told his opinion 50 times. And she has a story about standing there crying while Steve Garvey is like, I'll, I'll stay here as long as you need, but you have to stop crying. Because you're just standing there on the other side of a closed door knowing that all your colleagues are being able to do their job and you're not being able to do yours. Right. And then it's like, well, women just can't do this good work. Uh, Exactly right. You yourself have had to put up with a grisly amount of harassment, uh, as many women in the media have. And I know you write in your book that uh, you often get the response, uh, just get offline or, oh, just don't feed the trolls. Can you speak to that? Why why is that response really not not helpful? Yeah, I mean, the first thing I always hear is, well, just don't be on Twitter then, or just don't be on social media, which especially Twitter is just not doable in this day and age if you're covering sports. That is where news breaks. I mean, organizations, teams break news themselves on Twitter. You see players interacting and sharing and sometimes beefing with each other on Twitter. I mean, that's really where everything sports-related sort of happens, Twitter and to a lesser extent, Instagram. So If you're not going to be on Twitter, you're already steps behind everyone else in the industry and knowing what's happening. So there's that. And the other thing is that it's funny because I, you know, I've reached out to HR departments for help with trolls and with online harassment. And and their response has been, you know, just be less controversial or don't engage with these guys. And and I think that this is problematic for two reasons, because first, don't engage means, you know, just sit there and let this stuff wash over you day after day, death threats, rape threats, men saying you look like a pig, you know, I mean, all these kinds of things without ever standing up for yourself or fighting back. And I I think from a mental health standpoint, that's really terrible. You know, and the other thing is that when you're working in media, you're supposed to be there to engage with people. And it's just, it's like wading through 50 feet of garbage to be able to do your job. You know, I mean, you, media outlets want their reporters and their, their media, their talent, for lack of a better word, to be out there, you know, engaging with fans and developing a following and interacting with people. And trolls just make it impossible. It's, not a way that anybody should ever have to go to work. You know, you, nobody has to really go to work through throngs of people screaming horrible things at them. But if you're if you're a reporter and you're online, that's just supposed to be part of the job. And I think that is really damaging. And it seemed from your book like you get no help at all, no support at all from your employer, as you as you intimated. It's just you're kind of left to deal with it yourself, which is basically impossible. Yeah. Um, I, you know, I, there's been a lot of talk lately and in the women's media center, especially Amnesty International have both put out calls for, for news organizations to do a better job protecting their employees. So, you know, I think that a lot of, a lot of outlets want, they say they want diversity, right? They want different voices. They want women, they want people of color. They want members of the LGBTQ community. But the, the bottom line is that when you're engaged in, in the sports media landscape, there are a lot of people out there who really have a very vested interest in sports remaining white and male. And anyone else is seen as an interloper, an outsider, can make for some really nasty interactions with people. So the problem is when you bring these people into your newsroom, you want them to cover stories that are controversial or stories that, you know, is going to get a rise out of the fan base. But then you don't protect them. 
once they're out there, then it's sort of like, oh, well, sorry, that's your problem. And, and that cannot be the way that this is, because the effect that it has is that it silences those voices, those outsider voices. So, I mean, there have been plenty of days when someone has said something, you know, sexist or racist that they really should be called out for. But you're sort of like, I do not have the emotional bandwidth to deal with this today. I just can't. And so you're quiet instead of saying it. And in that way, we wind up hearing the same voices we've always heard, which are white male, because those are the voices that go largely unchallenged by the trolls. And also there's more of them. I mean, there's only there may be only one of you that a thousand fans are attacking, but there's a thousand fans. There's a thousand of them and one of you. So it makes sense that you would have to take a day off every now and then from engaging. Right. Yeah, that's exactly right. And, you know, (laughs) trolls can be remarkably well organized. I mean, there's subreddits and stuff where they get together and they plan what they're going to do to this person or that person. So it's it's much more than just ignore the person or just don't go in your mentions if you don't want to see it. It, It's much harder than that because different trolls want different things and they will follow you across platforms and keep ramping up their behavior until they get the reaction out of you they want. So this idea of like, oh, just ignore the bully, like you tell kids doesn't work in the schoolyard and it really doesn't work online either. Yes. Something that has always baffled me is how men's sports really sweeps domestic violence under the rug when their players are accused or even indicted or convicted of it or on camera <laughs> doing it. Yeah. Do you think that's a, of a piece with the sexism in the it, it's just like the value of women in the whole in this whole universe seems to be very low? Yeah, I think that's exactly right. And I think it's a reflection of the way that women are treated in society at large. I mean, sports is sort of society in the way we treat issues of race, issues of homophobia, transphobia, sexism. I mean, they're all just sort of amplified, right? Because you've got all these just sort of rabid testosterone running wild in the the sports world. And so, yeah, everything um, gets blown up a little bit. You know, there was just a game Thursday night um, in which Antonio Brown, who's been accused of sexual misconduct and sexual assault and domestic violence by multiple women, you know, we had Al Michaels and Michelle Tafoya on talking about what a great friend Tom Brady is for sticking by him instead of asking why a guy who's been accused by so many women is playing in the league at at this point. And, and, you know, one of the things that the NFL does, especially, is that they investigate these guys, they discipline them, and then they go out of their way to rehabilitate them, right? So, you know, like Ben Roethlisberger, he was suspended for all the allegations of sexual assault against him. But now he's like the face of the league. He's like the poster boy for the league, or he has been. Tyreek Hill, who was infamously heard on tape threatening his wife and saying, you better be afraid of me too, the NFL had him in an elf costume on a graphic for Christmas a couple of years ago as if he's just like a jolly fun little guy. The NFL goes out of their way to really do this sort of no more thing and really talk about how much they care about women. And like I said, women are making up 47% of their fan base these days, but they want to talk about it and they discipline the guy and then it's over and they want you to forget about it and embrace him again. And that's just sort of not the way it works especially for women fans, many of whom have been victims of sexual assault or know someone who has or know someone who's been a victim of domestic violence. It's just a real disconnect. 
I think, between the way that they, they say they want to treat women and the way they actually do treat women. And sadly, too many men in this country, in the world, get their cues from guys who are in the sports world. So if they see, like, you know, oh, well, Tyreek Hill's teammates don't have a problem with him. Andy Reid doesn't have a problem with him. Tom Brady loves Antonio Brown. Then it's like, why shouldn't I love him, too? And so in that way, I think the victims get completely swept out of the picture. Yeah, and they sort of paper it over. I mean, I think you write about this, how they, the, the um, rehabilitation of a domestic abuser doesn't take two weeks. <laughs> you know, it takes a long time and a lot of therapy and stuff, and, but they're not really addressing the problem. Yeah, batter intervention count. I mean, a lot of people think like, oh, he has to go to anger management counseling. And anyone who works in the domestic violence sphere will tell you it's really not about anger. It's about wanting to control a situation. And so, you know, batterer's intervention, which is one of the few things that, that has been proven to make a difference in, in, you know, the way that abusers behave, is something that takes sort of six months at a starting point and can take years. And, you know, when the NFL just suspends a guy for a couple months or for a couple games or major league baseball suspends someone and has them talk to a counselor on the phone that's not really what it takes to sort of rehabilitate an abuser so it's all just pr and window dressing and i think um mlb makes the best effort at it but i'm not really sure that anybody even comes close to getting it right yeah, it's uh, it's it's a little depressing. Um, and you have statistics really in your book. <laughs> you have. I just wanted to mention these statistics that kind of were very bracing to me. That five out of one thousand sexual assaults result in a felony conviction, and just fifty percent of domestic violence is reported to the police. So. Yeah. As you said, the sports world, I mean, I'm not sure which is the chicken and which is the egg, but they certainly reflect each other and influence each other. And, you know, the world's lack of care about domestic violence is reflected in sports and vice versa. Yeah, and I think, you know, one of the things that has really been shocking to me is the lack of understanding of the legal system that so many people have. So, you know, it, it's difficult to try to explain to someone why most um, rapists wind up walking free without even being reported or why most abusers or why most women go back to their abusers and the prosecutors wind up dropping the charges. Because what so many people see is, oh, well, he's not in jail. Therefore, that means he didn't do it. And um, you'll have, you know, I mean, the other night I, I had guys telling me Antonio Brown was never charged uh, criminally, but he did settle a civil suit over the summer. And I had all these men on Twitter saying she was found to be a liar. The court threw it out and found that he was innocent. And, and none of that happened. But I think that the way that athletes and celebrities are treated when it comes to um, domestic violence and sexual assault versus the way that we perceive abusers and violent men should be treated is, is there's such a gulf between those two things that people can't even wrap their mind around it. So they say, hey, you know, Antonio Brown was accused of a violent rape. Here he is playing on the football field. Something must have happened, which is probably that he was found innocent and she was proven to be a liar. So I'll believe that. And, um, you know, like I was I wrote the other day that, you know, Al Michaels talking about Antonio Brown and sweeping all the sexual assault allegations against him as calling them issues. A whole bunch of issues is what he said. It, it just serves to minimize the whole thing. And unfortunately, there's a lot of young men watching and young women, too who take their cues on how they should think about these issues 
from people in the world of sports who really aren't qualified to talk about this kind of thing at all. And and also it's like, well, I know this guy and I love to watch him play football. And so he's kind of like, I'm kind of rooting for him. You know, I come out of the gate kind of rooting for the the athlete. And then who's this woman? I don't know who she is. Oh, she's probably lying. You know, it's just there's just a whole lot of problems with with the whole system. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, especially since these guys come into your living room or your, you know, bedroom or whatever, you know, late at night when you're watching baseball, trying to fall asleep, or, you know, every Sunday when you're watching their game and you feel like you know them. And, you know, you see them smile for the camera and give these great sound bites, and you feel like you know them, but who is this woman? I don't know her. And, you know, one of the issues is that we see these guys and the smile. We don't see the PR team behind them and the lawyers and the agents and their entire organization all standing against this one woman. Um, And that's not even to mention all the fans that immediately jump on board with the guy and can make the woman's life miserable if her name gets out, which inevitably does. So no wonder so many of these cases wind up going away. Right. And no wonder people don't even bother pressing charges. How hopeful are you for women in sports media? Because sometimes I feel like we're going backwards in sports media. Do you feel hope for for young women coming up? Gosh, that's a hard question. You know, in some ways I do. Definitely there are many more women involved in in front of the camera and in the newsroom and, and everywhere else than there ever were when I was growing up, right? I mean, I had one or two women to look at. Leslie Visser is always, you know, my idol growing up. Um, as a woman who was on TV talking about sports, But, you know, at the same time, I I meet young girls all the time who I'll say, you know, they'll say to me, oh, I wanted to be a reporter, but I don't think I can handle the abuse, so I'm going to go into PR. There's nothing wrong with that. I mean, certainly we need women in PR, too. But uh, we really need those voices, you know, on an investigative level, uh, writing columns, talking about issues that are important to women. Every year before football starts, we get these graphics from the news outlets that are or the media outlets that are like, here's our broadcasting teams for the NFL. Here's our college football broadcasting teams. And it's still almost all men, with maybe one or two exceptions, except for the sideline reporters, which are all women. Sideline report is a great job. It's a tough job. It's it's a job that that really should be handled by a veteran. And there's nothing wrong with being a sideline reporter, but it shouldn't be the only job that women in sports media can get if you want to be in front of a camera. So I'm really hoping that we're able to push more women into the booth, behind the cameras, into production, in editor roles instead of just writer roles. We really need to start working our way up into the upper echelons of sports media. Is there any advice that you give those women, those young women coming up that you talk to to kind of get them into those positions? Yeah, I mean, I think a couple things. I, I really do think representation matters. You have to see it to be it. You know, it, like I said, it never occurred to me that I could be in a broadcast booth growing up because I never saw a single woman doing that. So, you know, one of the things is that we're all sort of forging our own paths here. I mean, women being at this level that people are now in the media is kind of a new thing. So for a lot of us, there isn't someone to look at and say, I want my career to be like hers. You sort of have to forge your own path is the first thing. The second thing I tell them is to get used to asking for what you want. I think that women too often are are taught, don't be pushy, don't be bossy, don't, um, you know, don't interrupt, all the things that men do. 
And I think that we're oftentimes treated in the newsroom or, you know, in a media outlet like, well, you're lucky to be here. You know, there's no other women here. You're lucky, which is baloney. You know, I mean, there should be a lot of us here. It shouldn't be just one. So, you know, I, I spent my career seeing men walk into bosses' offices and saying, this is what I want, even if it's something they're wildly unqualified for. And so I, I try to urge women to do the same thing because this is an industry largely built on self-promotion and on pushing yourself forward and constantly being the one there saying, hey, hey, me, me, me. And then the final thing is to get yourself a group of girlfriends because no one else is going to understand what you're going through in this business than the other women that are going through it as well. And I think that we spend a lot of time looking at other women as competition in this field because there are so few of us and we know there's only going to be one woman picked for whatever it is. And we all want to be that woman. But at the end of the day, I really think it's the other women who are going to pick you up and dust you off and sort of push you back out there and um, try to tell young women, you know, right out of the gate, you need to sort of have your tribe around you. That's great advice. And is there anything that fans can do to help change things? Read what we write or watch our videos or listen to our podcast. That is the way that too many outlets measure success is not whether you put together a really great podcast or you wrote a great piece, but how many people read it or how many people listen to it. So if there are women out there that you want to support, that you really like, if it's Jessica Mendoza, if it's Andrea Kramer, whoever it is, when they write something, share it and tell people to read it. When they listen to their podcasts and share them with other people, sort of help promote women from the point, from, you know, where you are as a fan, because that's how you move up in this industry. And so always great to have people on your side sort of calling out the BS that we deal with on social media and everywhere else. But at the end of the day, if you really want to see women move up through the ranks, they have to be successful. And so that means we need clicks, we need listens, we need views, we need eyeballs, um, and we need people to share our work. And speaking of that, in your book, you write about watching an NFL game with your sons where a woman was calling it. And and how was that remarkable? Yeah, I mean, so my sons are now uh, a junior and a freshman in college. And it was when Andrea Kramer, I think it was Andrea Kramer and Hannah Storm on Amazon, or it was Beth Mullins calling a game. But either way, women calling an NFL game, not anything I ever heard during my entire childhood. It gives me hope because I, I had it on and they sort of came in the room and they never said, oh, there's a woman calling this game. They just sort of accepted it and, you know, went about their business. And that's where we all need to be, I think, to the point where we don't even notice, where there's so many women in this business that it's just ubiquitous to have a woman calling a game instead of a International Women's Day one time, you know, PR stunt or whatever. So um, I'm hopeful that the next generation, which seems to be far advanced on gender issues, much more than my generation ever was, um, I'm hopeful that they're going to be the ones where everything sort of changes. Yes, I agree. I have a lot of hope for this for this generation. Now that the book is out and you're doing press, how has the attention slash harassment been? Has it, has it, has there been a backlash or how's that going for you? Yeah. I mean, there's some, definitely some people I wrote about in the book who really weren't happy about what I wrote. And I, I I mean, I knew that was coming. So, um, but by and large, the reaction has been overwhelmingly positive. It's great. You know, when you, go into, you know, your Instagram account or Twitter and you see people talking about the book and sharing things they read in it or sharing things they under, they highlighted and, you know, tabbed in their book. So that's really been great. And, you know, I think the first book is sort of like you learn how to write a book. And one of the things Jeff Perlman, the great sports writer, told me is that, you know, you get two weeks in the sun 
after your book comes out and then you go back in the closet and start working on the next book. And so that's sort of, that's sort of exactly how it is. I mean, you get two weeks of people telling you how great and wonderful you are, and then you have to start thinking about the next book. <laughs> so that's sort of been the experience. I mean, it's, yeah, it's, it's, um, it's a short lived, you know, short lived, um, celebration. Yes. But it's, it's been, very... it's been great. A very out of proportion for how long it takes to write a book. You only get two weeks exactly of glory. Right. It's like when you have a baby and for the first week, everybody wants to come help with the baby. And then after that, everyone's gone and you're just on your own. <laughs> That's funny. Well, thank you for this wonderful and necessary book. And may your career be peaceful from now on. <laughs> thank Julie, you so much. Julie DeCaro, thank you so much for joining us on the Gulf Coast Life Book Club. Oh, it was my pleasure. That was Julie DeCaro, author of Sidelined, Sports, Culture, and Being a Woman in America. To comment on the show, find us on Facebook at WGCU Public Media or on Twitter at WGCU. And now book critic Janet Somerville of the Toronto Star tells us about four historical novels that caught her eye. Today we're here with Janet Somerville. She's a contributor to the Toronto Star, and she's the author of Yours for Probably Always, Martha Gellhorn's Letters of Love and War, 1930 to 1949, which is available now in audio, read by the fabulous Ellen Barkin. Janet, welcome. I hear you have some historical novels to tell us about. Thank you so much, Carrie. It's a delight to be back here with you at WGCU and talking to your dedicated listeners who love to read. Um, the books that I'm lifting up today take us from 16th century Florence to 19th century England and 1930s America. And the first two I'd like to talk about are debuts, and they are absolutely delightful. The first one is by Lisa Rochon. It's called Tuscan Daughter and it's set um, just outside of Florence in a little village called Settignano between 1500 and 1505 which were the halcyon years in which Michelangelo was carving David and Leonardo da Vinci was painting the Mona Lisa and the story focuses on a young woman who is quite poor. Her father has recently died. Her mother has disappeared. And she's taking the family's olive oil by cart into Florence every day. But she's also a talented artist. And because of her sex and because of her poverty, she's not able to be apprenticed to, to anyone. And she ends up taking scraps of charcoal and sketching her drawings on the stone walls around Florence. It's a beautiful book. It's impeccably researched and rife with lush detail and life's wisdom. Now, the other debut is by Lindsay Zier Vogel, and it's called Letters to Amelia. And it has a dual narrative of an archivist in 2020 who's been tasked with cataloging the recently found correspondence between Amelia Earhart and her lover and fellow aviator, Jean Vidal. And while she's reading these passionate letters between Amelia and Jean, she also starts to write her own uh, letters to Amelia, trying to process her own losses and joys in her life. It's a winning debut rife with, with tenderness and hope, and who couldn't use hope 
these days, Carrie. Indeed. And what about, I think you have two more, right? Also historical fiction. Yes, there's Nicola Harrison's The Showgirl. And for any of you who are missing New York City, as I am missing visiting New York City. This is set there in 1927. And it follows uh, a young woman named Olive Shine. That's her stage name, of course. A young Midwestern woman who ends up working for the Ziegfeld Follies. And uh, it's portrayal of tension between love and ambition resonates even today. And the last uh, book I want to uh, lift up is by Kathleen Winter. It's called Undersong, and it's about Dorothy Wordsworth. Now, I'm sure most people know who William Wordsworth was. Dorothy was his sister, and she has previously been marginalized because of her more famous brother. But this book reclaims Dorothy's life and words. And Kathleen Winter actually spent time transcribing some of Dorothy Wordsworth's journals um, for the Wordsworth Trust. And so the the details are never before known and, and seen, but it's also a book that talks about the reverence for the natural world. It's compelling, it's gracefully written, it's poignant, profound. I think it will remain one of my favorite books of, of 2021. So oh, those are the four. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Janet. I really appreciate you coming on to give us all these wonderful reviews of historical fiction. Thank you so much. Oh, it's been an absolute delight. And I hope some of your readers will look out for one of of these books at their local libraries or or maybe even buy them as a gift for um, for the holidays from an independent bookseller. Go to WGCU.org under Gulf Coast Life to find a link to order any books you hear about on the show. Our show today was produced by Mike Canary and me. Our director is Richard Chinqui. Our social media coordinator is Tara Callaghan. For now, thanks for listening. I'm Carrie Barber, and this is WGCU-FM Fort Myers 90.1, WMKO Marco Island 91.7 FM, NPR for Southwest Florida.